I don't know about you, but I loved being involved in sports and activities and things growing up in, in grade school. Uh, when I was in the sixth grade, my dad asked me if I wanted to be a part of, of Boy Scouts. He was an Eagle Scout himself, and he explained to me a little bit about what they did and what it was about, and I said, sure, why not? How many of you guys are involved in Boy Scouts or, or are Eagle Scouts yourselves? There's a couple of you. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, a lot of the, the merit badges that we worked for were right up my alley as I love being outside and, and camping and hiking. And there were merit badges for like uh, understanding how to work a compass and maps and building a campfire and pitching a tent and, and archery and all kinds of fun stuff that a middle school boy is like, yes, this is great. And I absolutely loved it. I love Boy Scout camp. I love the polar bear swim early in the mornings. So much fun. I remember very clearly, though, a moment when we were, I think, in the eighth grade, and one of the troop leaders sat us all down and said, hey, you guys are about to enter high school. And there's two things that I've seen in my years of, of leading this troop that really stop Boy Scouts from obtaining their Eagle Scout. And that's gas and perfume. <laughs> he explained that when you get older, you get a job, you buy a car, you got to put gas in that car. You get a girlfriend, start in the dating relationships and, and things and and they often serve as distractions and keep Boy Scouts from getting that Eagle Scout. And I was determined to not let that be me. And it wasn't. But I didn't get my Eagle Scout either. I remember clear as day getting in my dad's truck after a weekly meeting and just saying, I'm done. I was, I was wanting to get my Eagle Scout. I was wanting to get the merit badges and move to the, to the next rank and, and move ahead in the, in the Boy Scout journey. But... It seemed like all the other people, a part of my troop, just didn't care. They wanted to go outside and play during our time. They wanted to organize a whitewater rafting trip, which we went on a couple, and they were a lot of fun. And I wanted to have fun also, but, but there was a purpose to me being there, and they, they didn't seem to care. And so I didn't want to waste my time. And so I just stopped. I've really enjoyed being part of the Boy Scout troop, though, and there's a part of me that wishes that I had stuck with it to, to get that Eagle Scout rank. I was a part of football teams and the band, and I did a lot of things growing up that, that were a lot of fun. And I think that kids should be involved in, in team events, sports or academics. They, they should learn how to work as a team, how to work hard at something, how to win well, how to lose well. I think there's a lot of positive things that can come from being part of groups as we grow up. I think as adults, it's important for us to be a part of our community. I think it's important to be a part of community groups and, and to be involved in our neighborhoods and communities wherever we live. And I think there's good things that come from that. I think it's important that we do the best that we can at work, that we excel in, in whatever our field is, that we do it to the best of our ability. The problem comes in when we start when we start to look to those things as our identity, when we start to see ourselves more in what we do in this world and less in light of who God calls us to be. 
And that's what Paul brings out today as we dive into Colossians chapter 3. If you've missed the last few weeks, we were in, we're in this series looking at the book of Colossians, and I want to encourage you to go back if you've missed a couple weeks and, and check out YouTube or Facebook or our podcast and, and catch up because it's just been, I think, a really fun journey through the book of Colossians. What we've seen is how Paul in prison heard about this church in the city of Colossae and he wanted to write to encourage them because they were, they were struggling in their faith. They, they were being deceived by false doctrines and, and false teachings about who Jesus is. And Paul reminds them about the supremacy of Christ, how big Jesus is and how Jesus lives inside of them. He, he re- reminds them to remember what they were taught in the faith and not to be distracted by these popular teachings, by these, these popular uh, and, and false teachings that weren't actually true to who Jesus is. And today we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to look at the first 17 verses here, but, but I want us at first just to focus in on these first three. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ and set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits at the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you die to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, before we really dive into this, I just, I want to let you guys know something. There are some weeks that I dive into the text and I feel like I have a message from the Lord and, and I feel like it's something that people need to hear, but it's honestly just not something that I wrestle with a whole lot in this season of my life. Now that will change as I go through life. There's different, different seasons in our life. There's different times in our life when we're, we're doing better in different ways. We need to hear different things. Just life happens. And there's just some weeks where it doesn't particularly hit home for me, but then someone will tell me afterward, hey, that's exactly what I needed to hear. And I'm like, praise to God, because the Spirit did what the Spirit always does and speaks to the heart of those who need to hear the message. And then there's weeks like today. And as I prepared this message today, I just got to be honest, it felt like the Spirit got in a Mack truck and ran me over and then put it in reverse to make sure I was down and then got out and stomped on me just, to, for, just, just for good measure. And I think this is one of those messages that regardless of where you're at right now, if you call yourself a disciple of Christ, a Christian, he's going to do the same to you. So I tell you that to buckle in not to throw anything at me because it's not me, it's the Spirit of God convicting us that sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes we get distracted by the things of this world and we don't set our mind and our thoughts on the kingdom of heaven the way that we should. It's so easy in this life to get distracted by the things that we see, right? We live in a physical world with, with things. I can see you guys. I can see the chairs. Church online, I can't see you, but I see, I see the camera. And I don't know if it's this camera or that camera, but I see a camera. And, and we live in this physical world where, where we wake up in a physical home and we drive a physical car to work or, or we sit down at a physical table if we work from home or, or whatever the case is. And we live in this physical world where even the non-physical things are physical, Right? So like I might have an argument with my wife last night, but it affects my mentality and it's still a very real thing even though the argument is not a physical thing that I could hold in my hand. We live in this physical world and so it's so hard 
to think about this abstract concept of heaven, this abstract concept of the kingdom of God, and visualize it. And keep that at the forefront of our minds. Because we, we don't, we, we have pictures, we have ideas, we have metaphors, we have parables, we have the teachings of Jesus that describe the kingdom of God, that describe heaven, but we can't see that. We don't know what that's going to be like. We don't have a picture in this physical world of what that's going to be. And we are so busy that even if we could, we're so busy with family and work and little league and other organizations and fun things that are good things for us to do and be a part of. But because they're right here in front of us, we don't, we don't think about the kingdom of God first. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And this isn't the kind of first where it should be the first thing you do when you wake up, that because it should be first, that before I do anything else, I sit down with God and I read and I pray and I spend time with God. And that's a great thing to do, but it's not that kind of first where as long as I do it first, then I can go about my day and everything's good. No, no, no. It's a first that before I see my identity in my job or in my family as a husband or or father, before I see and, and, and do anything in this world, I think first about the kingdom of God. And that's the filter that we wrestle with. That we struggle with. We, we sometimes, we just like to draw boxes in the sand, lines in the sand and say, at, at this moment, then I'm an employee of this company and I have to, to work in a certain way. In, in this box over here, I'm, I'm, a, I'm with my friend groups, I'm with the guys, I'm with the girlfriends and I have to say certain things and joke in certain ways and I, I do these certain things to be, to be a part of this group. Over here, I, I draw this box around who I am at, at home or when I'm off, and, and this, I, I behave a certain way because our minds don't first go to the kingdom of God. But if we kept our minds focused on the kingdom of God, if we sought first his kingdom and his righteousness, then everything we el- else we do goes through that lens first goes through that lens of the kingdom of God before we're an employee, before we're a husband or a wife or a mother or a father. We are first a child of God and to, and to think about the kingdom of God first and foremost above anything else. Paul goes on in verse 5 to say to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he lists a bunch of things to put to death. He includes sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry, worshiping the things of this world. In verse 8, he he includes anger and rage and malicious behavior and slander and foul language. And then he continues in verse 12 to say, here's here's what you replace them with. Because if you just get rid of them and don't replace them with anything, then they're just going to come right back. So he says, replace them in verse 12. He says, since God shows you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. Here's the thing that we don't like to do. Put to death the things of this world that are in our lives. I think the greatest identity that we have a hard time putting the lens on of the kingdom of God before we see ourselves as, an, as a husband or wife or an employer or employee or, or whatever that lens may be, I think it's the identity of self. Notice how Paul says to put to death earthly things in you. There's not this idea that we're to make sure that other people are living their lives in the way that Christ wants them to. No, no, no. I am responsible for me to put to death the things in me that are not of Christ. I think I've even stood up here before and told you guys how I'm not a patient person. I struggle with patience. And there have even been times that I say, you know, that's just, that's just how God made me. That when, when God was handing out patience in heaven before I was born, I didn't have the patience to stand in line, so I went to play Ultimate Frisbee, and then I forgot because I don't have a good memory either, and I never came back to get the patience. But any time I or you have ever said, well, that's just how God made me, means that I'm not willing to do the work in my life to become less of me and more like Christ. Any time that I say, well, well, God just made me a passionate person, and sometimes it becomes too much. Do you not see the example of Jesus and how he tamed that from time to time? Anytime I've said, I'm just not a patient person, I see the patience that Jesus exemplified and that he called us to have also. Well, I'm just an angry person. I just have this, I just have that. That's the way God made me. We live in this dichotomy between, yes, God created us with special skills and abilities and gifts and certain personality. And he, he created us and he did not mess up in who he created us to be. While on the other hand, we live in a fallen and broken world and none of us are perfect. None of us are, are perfect. And so anytime we say, well, well, that's just who God made me to be. We might as well, well look up into heaven and say, God, I'm fallen and broken and I don't care to become more like you. Because we have the lens and we we're focusing on, on me, on who I am, and not keeping our eyes focused on the kingdom of God first and foremost. I love the way that... Uh, Paul wraps up this section in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You know what it means to keep our eyes focused on the kingdom of God, focused on the heavenly things before the earthly things, before our earthly identities here? It means that everything we do or say, and I would even add think in here because it's a matter of the heart, anything we do say or think should represent Christ. That's hard to do. 
That's hard to do. I, I can give you probably a half dozen examples of, of simple ways that we all fail miserably at this. You ever been to the grocery store and trying to get just two things and everyone in the self-checkout line has a cart full? Oh, it's the worst. Been at, been at a traffic light and the light turns green and here comes one, two, three, four cars by? Come on. And my thoughts in those moments are not really Christ-like if I'm being honest. And we laugh at those, we joke, and we realize that we could probably do better. But those are pretty superficial, aren't they? Christ has not called us to a superficial relationship with him. So allow the Spirit to step on your toes for just a minute. You ever read an article or seen a story about how someone raped and then murdered a child? What's our first thought? I don't know about you, but mine is that there's a special place in hell for those people. And yet I'm not so sure that's the response Christ had. I've heard many people, and I've said variations of it myself, this home is protected by nine millimeter. No one better break into my home. It'll be the last home they ever enter in their life. Is that really the attitude that Christ had? There's a lot of, frankly, political thoughts that we have about universal health care, stimulus checks. I could go on. And I have my opinions about those too. And yet when I look at the life of Jesus, I see him feeding those who are hungry. I see him healing those who are sick. I see the places where Jesus says the Son of Man has no home, no place to lay his head. And we care so much about our homes and creating that homey atmosphere. And we want our kids to be in a good home. But I just have to sit and ask myself the question, is that really what we see Jesus doing here on earth? And I'm sure that there's a few of you who, many of you maybe, who are assuming certain things about my political view. And it just goes to illustrate how, how deeply ingrained this is in our culture and in our thoughts and our mentality that it goes through a political view before that of faith. When the reality is all I'm trying to ask is what did Jesus do? What did he exemplify? And how does that work in our world today? You know, our world is very different than the world of Paul, the world of Jesus 2,000 years ago. It's, it is a very different world. I'll be the first to admit that. But when you look at the stories that we see throughout Scripture, when you look at the stories, even historians write about things that have happened, when you, when you read 
the stories that were made up from thousands of years ago that we've been able to find, there are so many common themes that the stories may look a little different, they may sound a little different, but they're stories of love, they're stories of hatred, they're stories of revenge, they're stories of sacrifice, they're stories and the themes in those stories haven't changed. And the reality is that the way Jesus lived his life was not just good for 2,000 years ago in his culture and in his context. But it's how he expected his disciples to live. Look, I get how hard this is. And I think there are many other ways that if we were to honestly take a look at the person in the mirror, we could see even more ways that our lives and our mentalities, our thoughts do not match what Jesus exemplified in his life. And I don't say that to beat you down. I don't say that to make you feel bad about it. But to simply leave you with this question, do you actually want to follow Jesus? For those of you who are a Christian who do believe in Christ, do you actually want to become more like him? Because that's what he's called us to. He hasn't called us to just surrender parts of his life. He hasn't called us to just dabble in it, to just stay the superficial, you know, we'll do this in, in most of your life, but you don't have to surrender all your life. You don't have to do this in every aspect of your life. You don't have to always be like this always. No, no, no. Set your mind on the things of the kingdom of God first. Before anything else. Before my identity as a father, as a husband, before my identity as a pastor, as a friend, before whatever political view I have, the question should always be, how do I best represent Christ? How do I best, in verse 5, put to death the earthly things in me? In verse 17, how do I best represent Jesus? And I think if we're honest with each other for a moment, we are the ones that have kept other people far from Jesus. Because we haven't been all in, because we haven't actually tried to do this across the board with every aspect of our life, people look at our life and they see what Jesus did and they're like, wait a minute. Do you actually follow him? And we are the ones that have kept people from Jesus. If we want to do the Great Commission, if we, want to, if we want to make disciples, then the way we do that is to, to completely release every aspect of our life, every identity, even the identity of self, to Jesus and say, it's all yours. Put to death the, the earthly things in me and make me more like you. we have to stop drawing lines in the sand. Because what we see Jesus doing is not drawing lines in the sand, but writing in the sand. 
In Matthew chapter 8, we read of the story where the religious leaders bring a woman caught in the act of adultery and they throw her in the middle of this crowd of people and they say to Jesus, Old Testament says we stone her, what do you say we do? And he bends down and he writes something in the sand and I don't know what he wrote, the text doesn't say. And when they press him for an answer, he stands up and he says, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And and then he bends back down again and he continues writing in the sand. And then the most beautiful thing happens when he steps over what he wrote and he looked her in the eye and says, is no one here to condemn you? Neither do I. What I think he wrote in the sand were words like grace, words like compassion, words like mercy, words that Paul describes should come into our lives to replace the things that we put to death that are earthly in us. Because that's what Jesus was all about. In a couple months, we're going to be changing our name to Grace Christian Church. And this is one of the reasons why, because grace is such a piece, an important piece of of what we should be known for as Christians. A few months ago, we did a series in grace. We define grace as unmerited favor that even though I deserve death, Jesus gave me life. And I know how hard that is to do to others. They might deserve your hatred. They might deserve your thoughts about what they're doing in that moment. But what we have to give them is grace. Father God, I come before you in this moment asking you to point out the areas of my life, the areas of our life that don't line up with your son. Jesus, it's hard to remain focused on the things of the kingdom of heaven in this world with all the distractions and and all the good things that there are to to do and to participate in, to, to be a part of. But God, I pray that as we go to our jobs, as we go to our homes, as we coach Little League, as we're involved in whatever groups in our community that we're a part of, God, I pray that everything will be seen in this world through the lens of the kingdom of God, through the lens of what you did in this world when you were here, through the lens, through the lens of grace. May we identify the pieces and the aspects of our lives that don't look like as don't look like you as they should. That's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.